Hi there, I'm Robert Netkin, host of the Information Security Podcast. For 16 years, the summit has gathered thought leaders of the information security world for a week of learning, networking, and conversation about the industry. Today, we're giving you an inside look at one of the 2018 keynote addresses given by Simon Crosby, recorded live at the Information Security Summit. Simon Crosby is the founder and CTO of Swim AI. He's also a faculty member for the Computer Laboratory of Cambridge University. This year at the summit, Simon gave a keynote titled Toward Computing Infrastructure You Can Trust, a personal story of Troy and Byzantium. And we're gonna share it with you now. What I wanted to do is tell you why I'm a little bit of a cyber optimist. And first of all, thank you everyone, every one of you who goes to work every day to make the world a safer place, to protect your infrastructure. That's good for you and good for all of us. And I admire you all tremendously. Thank you for your good work. Um, so just a, you know, a sign for part of my journey on the way here. You've probably all seen this, right? And I'm gonna tell you, actually, I think at the end of the day, all this security story is really just, just more humans, right? Um, humans and tech. And when humans mix with tech, it's not always pretty. And so I think the way that we end up with better security is if we end up implementing mechanisms in technology which deal with our fundamental fragility as humans. And this is a very good example of that. You know, it's, it's just a classic example of stuff going wrong. And it's when stuff goes wrong that, that everything, is, is, everything goes pear-shaped. So a little bit of background on me. I'm, um, gosh, I'm an, a former academic uh, from the University of Cambridge. I've, um, I found my niche doing startups. I'm on number six now. It's kind of fun. It's all I'm good at. And along the way, I've done a, a few interesting things in security. So I'll tell you about that as we go through. But before I do, let's, let's set, the, set the scene perhaps a little bit. As information security practitioners, you're probably aware of the fact that even at the UN nowadays, there's recognition that the cyber domain is the fifth domain of conflict. Okay, so you'll all be okay if I do this, right? Okay, cool. But is that really true? I'm going to question that. Do you think any of the first four domains are still relevant? You do? You think having more nukes is great? Do you think Walmart can do without China or China without Walmart? So I think, and many academics now think, and I think it's an established but good topic to debate, that in fact, there is only one domain now. And the domain is cyber. And it's fought 24 by seven every day. You know it, you do it, and you're fighting it. It's the only domain. Sure, we go to messed up places with traditional kinetic stuff and we mess up more people and they mess us up. Okay, I get it. But that isn't where the big things happen. Everything big happens in cyber. Everything big. It's all happening in cyber, and it's all happening all the time. That is, the goal, the goal in cyber is not one big battle where suddenly, it takes, suddenly somebody takes everything they learn from any one of the breaches that have happened over the last n years and uses it to uh, completely destroy their foe. The game in cyber is continued attrition. And the question is, can you win? How are you gonna win? What are you gonna do today to make you stronger, to make your small part of the world stronger? And the sad thing is that in the domain of cyber, there is no notion of a military out there to protect you. There's no advanced forces out there to protect you. There's you. And you are the front of the fight in cyber. That's why I said thank you. Because every single day, you go and do it. So it isn't for me just duh. 
This is the reality that you and I live every single day. Okay, so my story is going to go back to, I guess, a simpler level of cyber, a, a level before we get into the information warfare piece, which is really related to the infrastructure that we rely on to run our enterprises and whether or not we can make that more secure. And it turns out there are some interesting things I've learned related to stopping things, stopping a hack and so on, protecting things that you care about, and then, and then what? What then? And so I think what I'm going to say is that there are lessons from Troy and Byzantium. Of course, you're all experts in ancient lore. Um, we seem to go round and around. And maybe there's, maybe there's a grain of truth that we can extract from all of this. So let's start then with a, a lesson from Troy. You all know the story, right? Anybody not know the story, story of ancient Troy? Okay, so, you know, it's 10 years. The Trojans are inside their castle, just like you're inside your enterprise every day, right? Trying to protect it. They're trying to protect the walls. And the walls are big and strong, right? Because they're Trojans and they took a long time building their city, just like you took a long time configuring your firewall rules. And um, outside the walls, there are all these nasty Greeks for 10 years. And doing pretty good and they're feeling pretty confident. One day they wake up and there's no more Greeks. But there's a pony sitting, well, a horse, sitting on the beach. So what they do, they will the damn thing inside, right? Duh. Okay, so last week I was in the Pentagon. I have no clearances, by the way. Um, so for me, going into the Pentagon is a bit like going in half naked, right? No device, nothing. So I'm deep inside the Pentagon. Looks a bit like Troy, right? And uh, so we're having this meeting with a bunch of folks. And one of the important participants is not present, he's in California. So what they do? They dial in on a conference bridge. So what do I hear, right? I mean, this is a fairly, fairly august bunch of folk. They care a lot about security. And I hear, welcome to, I'm gonna call it concall.com. Well, your free conferences are, my free conference is called. <laughs> and so I said to these guys, what the hell are you doing? And they, I mean, they were, their first instinct was to take me in my funny accent and throw me out, right? <laughs> so I pulled up the web and I just looked, okay? And I read this thing about this, whatever, the city of this or got, got his degree from Nazni Novgorod or something, whatever. I don't know, he's, he's probably a five and fine upstanding chap. The key point is that no matter how much we think about security, we all have the Trojan horse within us. Every single one of us, every single one of us is as stupid as anything and we keep on messing it up. And we always will. No matter how much we're trained, no matter how much we care about the mission, we're always gonna screw it up. So what can we do in technology to make it better? Well, one of the reasons I was at the is because we do keep messing it up, right? And so here I, I want to make the point that <clears throat> technology is what drives us. We have been online driving our economy, which is the leading economy, with technology for longer than any other economy on the planet. The consequence of that is that it's all old and creaky and falling apart, like many of us, right? A lot of this stuff's been around forever. And so this notion of legacy is fundamental. By the way, legacy is not true for Russia because they still have just a tiny portion of their economy online. Tiny, okay. Legacy is not true for China. Do you know why? Come on, somebody throw something or say something. I'll tell you why. GitHub. You get it? Every single day of the year, they download the very best stuff we produce from GitHub. Yes? 
And so in our own ability, in our own desire to share and move our world forward, we have shared our best technology free with people who don't necessarily have the same interests at heart as we do. Okay. So the problem of legacy is everywhere. And the problem of legacy is legacy apps, unpatched software, legacy detection mechanisms, whatever it happens to be, and our own human fragility, which will mean that we are going to click on something or do something stupid or dial in a free conference bridge, okay? But we're going to win anyway, right? You guys can wake up, wake up, have some more coffee. We're going to win anyway, right? Yeah, oh, okay. So you, this, is where, this is the bleeding edge of wonderful technology driven by Windows XP. The firing systems, the ship to shore systems, everything on this damn boat runs on Windows XP. And so, you know, no matter how much you try and escape our legacy and technology, it's going to reach up and grab you by the ankles and pull you down. Okay. And the equivalent vessel from the Chinese fleet doesn't have these same problems. It runs, runs on a version of Linux from Ubuntu, um, which is, gosh, just you know, it's produced every year. Okay. So let's get into something more, a little bit more substantive and talk about some goals given recognizing these problems. We're online. We've been online. We've got legacy tech. We're old. We're getting older with the technology we know, just like we get old with our music, right? We just still use Windows XP or whatever. Okay. What are we going to do about that? What can we do about it? Because we just can't lose everything. Is it a reasonable goal to try and solve this problem? And it's a problem that I've been trying to deal with perhaps unsuccessfully for a long time. If a bad guy can run code in your device, it's not your device. Right? We all get that one. Okay, so this is a Microsoft statement. So Microsoft went down this path of essentially saying, cool, we're going to have these integrity guards built into the Epic, well, start as a free utility, but now it's part of Windows 10. Uh, code integrity guards and arbitrary code guards to stop code that you don't want from running on your computer. Okay. We get it. Technology is hard, but does anybody see a fatal flaw? So the arbitrary code guard assertion is that you can present dynamic code generation, modification, and execution. Anybody see a challenge? Nope. Anybody use the World Wide Web? Right. Every single web page is code. It's tons of JavaScript. Anybody use Java? Anybody use a JIT? This stuff breaks all of it. And the problem is that technologically, we demand the ability to change stuff at a rate, at a rate which is different than the rate at which we can check that something is good. Can we check the certificate of every piece of code? Can you check the certificate of every web page? God, we haven't even got HTTPS everywhere. Right? So most people aren't even, aren't even using TLS. So this is a real problem. Okay, so now the personal part of my journey. So it starts with this, which is that I was the founder of a company which built this little hypervisor called Zen. And Zen is an open source hypervisor. It turns out it runs most of the, most of the big clouds on the planet, which includes everything, sadly, in China, most of AWS. We did fun work to make Hyper-V work um, for Microsoft in Azure and so on. But it turns out that you can do some really, really cool things if you are a hypervisor. So I'm going to tell you a hypervisor-based security story and why that's relevant. Now, even modern hardware-based attacks, such as Spectrum Meltdown, if you've heard about them, you can deal with uh, very efficiently in the hypervisor. And I'm going to take as my inspiration, by the way, this wonderful widget called the Xbox which is the only major games console which has never been completely hacked. Okay, and that's because it has a hypervisor in it. It's based on complete separation of domains between the stuff that runs the Xbox and the absolutely untrustworthy kid at the console <laughs> <laughs> who has absolutely every intention to break it or do something, right? Break the, break the security, break games, win games, get games free, and everything else. 
Okay, the Byzantium part of the story, I think is a really important lesson for how to think about yourself and security. So instead of putting ourselves inside the wall of Troy, which is how many of we security practitioners think of ourselves, and trying to defend those leaky walls, much as my folks at the Pentagon do, you should put yourself on the battlefield. Every single one of you is on the battlefield every single day, and you're out there amongst people you don't trust, people you don't know, some are good, some bad, but that's the play. The play is that you are not inside the walls. Okay, so imagine you're this Byzantine general, and I use the Byzantine general deliberately. If you, There's a fabulous problem in computer science called the Byzantine general's problem, which deals with this challenge. If you and I are Byzantine generals, and we have to win this battle, we have to take this city, but we're separated across the battlefield. How will we do it? How will we coordinate our troops in such a way that we win at the end of the day? And we have to take into account the fact that our messengers could be killed along the battlefield as they go between us, or they could be owned by the bad guy, that we could lose some skirmish, which is important in the battle as it evolves, we have to build a system which is resilient to all sorts of failures. Okay, so lesson here. Build a system which is resilient to failures. Right? Because you will fail. Somebody will put the wrong firewall rule in. The walls have got holes and people have to go in and out every single day. So build a system that is resilient to failures. In the cloud world, there is a there is a system that you probably use every day, which is built along these Byzantine failure ideas, and that's Netflix. So my friend Adrian Cockcroft, who designed that, built the Netflix cloud architecture so that it can sustain massive faults. Any part of that system can fail at any time. But if you push the button, which is play, you expect to get the movie, okay? For your 10 bucks a month, or whatever it happens to be, but that thing just has to work. And all sorts of crazy things will fail. And Netflix is designed along these Byzantine separation problem, uh, lines to deal with all sorts of problems. And to prove to themselves that they have the, the right architecture, they have this, this thing called the Chaos Monkey, which randomly shoots bits of their infrastructure down. Okay, and it runs 24 by 7 and randomly fails bits of stuff. And you still have to get your movie. Okay, so there's a lesson to be learned from this chaos monkey too, which is that you should embrace people who screw it up because they teach you your own vulnerabilities. Okay, and if you don't have somebody who's in that role, you should try and foster the role of somebody whose job it is to be the local idiot. <laughs> okay? Somebody who would be like Kevin Mitnick and wander around and try and persuade people to hand over their passwords under the guise of it, you, them being part of IT or whatever, right? But you should em explicitly embrace that because those people teach you your vulnerabilities. So you and I are Byzantine generals, and we're trying to take Troy. Well, Troy was a few hundred years earlier, but no, you get the idea. So this notion of Byzantine failure is a really important one in computer science, and there are some really fundamental proofs out there about how, to, how you can architect systems which are resilient to failure under various conditions. And uh, my company, which did this, called Bromium, by the way, um, and we, so we said, Cool, what can we do with a hypervisor that will help? And I'm gonna show you what we, what we think we can do. But this notion of Byzantine failure is this. A Byzantine failure tolerant system is one that does what people expect it to, no matter what. When you push the button on Netflix, you get the movie, okay? Despite disruption, user and operator errors, attacks, and so on, okay? And design and implementation errors must be avoided in the architecture of your Byzantine fault-tolerant system, eliminated or tolerated. So things will go badly wrong, 
By the way, if you look at most military structures, most armies, well, when they arrange themselves and go to war, they figured it out, okay? The DOD has about a million people. Seriously, they employ a million people in planning. I mean, that's a shocking number, but it's pretty good for, I know where your taxes go. Um, but they, they figured it out, you know? There's no point in having tanks up in the front of your battlefield, and then they run out of fuel or ammo or something, right? So these guys know how to plan for this. So the key point with Byzantine, planning for Byzantine failure is that things will go wrong. And often as information security practitioners, we forget that. We think that because we crafted the perfect application specific rule for our WAF, all's magic. All is magic. It's never the case. So if you took this notion of architecting for resilience to heart, you would buy into this idea that at any point in time, any part of your infrastructure would be compromised or fail. You are on the battlefield, any little bit of it will fail at any time. And when I mean fail, it could be attacked or something. Okay, so this monolithic security notion is really our biggest enemy, okay? This idea that we can build a fortress and have some people around the outside who are journeymen, right? People whose job it is to, you know, take away my iPhone or whatever. Those folk are not the people who will keep you secure. Your firewall rules are not the way to protect yourself. Okay. <clears throat> and so, along with this comes this notion of least privilege. It's another thing that we humans are really terrible at. Right? Terrible, terrible, terrible at it. So, least privilege, you get it. It says, you know, if you don't need the information, you just don't get it. It's not a negative thing. It's, it's not... It's not an offensive term, but we tend to bleed information very badly. We tell people things because we want to manage relationships. We think it might be important to them. We want to appear nice. We do all sorts of things. Okay, least privilege is your friend. Okay, and it makes life potentially tougher, but it is absolutely your friend when it comes to defending your organization. And then, of course, you know, any bit of your infrastructure could fail at any time, right? You've got to detect, learn, adapt in real time, and, and so on, um, and on you go, right? Most importantly, what I've learned, and I think I'm going to try and get this message through, is when things fail, chuck it out. Erase the execution context completely. And we have continually messed this up as humans, right? I'm going to show you how a hypervisor can help because that's all I know. And then on we go, okay? Recover and respond. So if you want to put it in Byzantine terms as Byzantine general, you don't give every soldier a copy of the plan for the battle in his back pocket. Okay? You don't say, hey, everybody get on the battlefield and let's all line up at 2 p.m. exactly and storm the door. You don't do that. It's all about dividing up information and least privilege and then tolerating failure along the way. Okay, let's go back to my plan, which is us stupid humans, our old technology, and see how this notion of Byzantine full tolerance works in the context of hypervisors. So I told you about Zen. Um, the, the hypervisor world has moved on remarkably. Probably many of you have virtual machines in your world. Many of you use VMware and other great tech uh, companies, technology in this area. The world has moved on amazingly. So, but well, eight years ago, we had this crazy idea, which is what if you could use hardware isolation, which is what a virtual, well, virtual machine is. Our virtual machines are hardware isolated from one another during execution. What if you could do this extraordinarily granularly, like between tasks, running in your operating system, between tabs in your browser, between documents, and so on, okay? That ends up being called micro-virtualization. And the idea here was to hardware isolate individual tasks and operating system services using hardware features that are part of the CPU. 
And there's some really cool things that come out of that. So the basic idea here is that every little thing you do on a very granular basis is hardware isolated from everything else. Now it turns out that's actually a really fierce technological problem because actually the operating systems that we built are woeful. Woeful, woeful at this notion of separation of duty, this privilege. For example, you know, if you uh, fire up a browser tab, and you go to Facebook, and you fire up another browser tab, and you go to, I don't know, your email or something, your Gmail, you know, the cookies are available to everything. We just rely on best practice and, and nice browser vendors to make sure that we don't end up with people stealing cookies and doing evil things. In fact, they do. They do terrible things. At my current company, Swim, we um, track the top 50 million websites and the handing of cookies. And it's absolutely shocking what websites do in terms of taking cookie structures from, for, from the, for their own stuff and from other sites and handing it off to third parties. They sell that information. Okay, but hey, your operating system, which promised to protect you, doesn't. And that shouldn't be any surprise to any of us. Okay, other structures like the Windows registry and God knows what else, they're all everywhere. It's tough. Anyway, it's possible to do this. There are some nice properties that come out of this. So you're often Facebook, maybe in an app, it could be on your iPhone or whatever else. And this task is then hardware isolated using the features for virtualization, which are now part of the CPU. Um, and what you get from this is really robust task isolation, just incredibly, incredibly tough because you've got hardware protecting you uh, and doing that. Um, you can also get an opportunity for monitoring what that particular thing is doing if you wanted to, right? So you could say, is my user uploading files or is it, is it doing bad things, right? And you also get an ability to check that it's alive, right? So this notion of a pulse running in the background is pretty cool. What's the, what's the core capability here is that you end up with this tiny little hypervisor. By the way, it's now just a part of Windows 10, and I'll tell you that story in a minute. But the, this tiny little hypervisor basically uses these capabilities built by Intel or AMD, or in fact, these features on every device that you happen to have, including the phone in your pocket, to use CPU virtualization to hardware isolate individual tasks in the operating system. So what you get is this hardware isolated memory. There is literally no way, I guess, modular row hammer, if you know what that is, to for one task to snoop on another and you get multi-core execution, all the other wonderful things that the hardware folks are doing for us. Okay, there is a notion of a virtualized operating system, but I wanna to convey to you that this isn't a VM in the traditional sense, heavyweight VMs. This is just a shadow page table entry on the CPU, and if you don't get it, that's cool. It's basically a bunch of pointers to memory copies of or not copies, just memory images of the operating system so it doesn't take space, okay? It's just a pointer to some code, which if it ever gets changed by any malware is an interesting thing, but doesn't actually occupy any additional space. So these micro VMs can be tiny, um, and these can be made copy on write. So the cool thing is that you can create a micro VM in, you know, in milliseconds that, um, that you can run these things against some logical operating system. It isn't the real operating system. It's not a separate boot image. They don't have to boot. They just point at stuff that's already in memory from the operating system. And if anything ever tries to write on that, that's a really interesting thing to see, right? Because something is trying to change my operating system or change the application, okay? You can prohibit device access. So you can say Facebook, you never get to go for my USB device or my storage device or this particular thing which I happen to be looking at, which is my enterprise's storage array or whatever it happens to be, okay? And then you get a complete virtual network. So you can say, hey, Facebook does not get to touch my corporate network. Wow, that's pretty cool. Because I get to take all the traffic from Facebook and basically put it on a separate logical network from your corporate land. 
That's pretty wild. So I've taken this most untrustworthy, I don't mean Facebook's bad, right? Facebook's good. <laughs> okay. Um, I get to take this really untrustworthy stuff deep inside the enterprise and then virtualize it on a granular basis and put it on its own network. That's pretty wild. It's on its own logical network. And so the nice consequence of this is that actually I don't care about your firewall at all, not even slightly. I want everything to be like I was in Starbucks. Okay, just an open network. And uh, cool, and then I run the task, and then this task gets need to know access to something, right? So this concept of least privilege is absolutely fundamental. You know, it gets just the files and just the cookies that it needs. And it's all in memory, and it happens really fast, okay? So that's pretty cool. And then the bad guy shows up at some point and does something nefarious, and what you care about, right? So he breaks the application in some way, breaks this logical notion of an operating system by doing some write. Do you care? You don't care. You just don't care. So this granular notion of separation of duty has ensured that this bad guy, no matter how bad he is, can't get anywhere, can't go down and do things, right? In the following sense that the bad guy would literally have to break hardware isolation, which is just hard. Let's just call it nation state hard, okay? Beyond nation state hard, it turns out. It's like a once in 10 year thing. Very, very difficult to do. Okay, and then you get to watch what's going on. You get, the, you get to see every single change made to memory. At a very, very granular basis, okay? And so it gives you an opportunity to, give, to have better instrumentation, to detect things, and then to respond, okay? And so you'll find, I'm not blaming Facebook here at all, but if some task goes wrong, you can get a complete execution trace for exactly what happened in that context. And that's kind of fun. More than that, every, every endpoint then becomes a sensor in the sense that it, when something does happen, the bad guy shows up somewhere, you get a fingerprint of a thing to go and look for elsewhere. Okay, And so the key point then is then you get to go and search for new attacks in real time. So the key point I want to make here is that if you're an enterprise, every single attack on your enterprise is unique to you. I think many of us don't get that. By the way, did you update your antivirus rules today? They completely don't matter. Okay? They absolutely and totally and completely do not matter. What you need to understand is that every single attack is machine generated. Attacks are generated at massive scale. There are millions of new variants of attacks every day. And if somebody wants into your org, the attack will be generated for your org. And you will never have a signature from any one of your antivirus vendors that protects you. And so this notion of protection is you. Again, it's you and what you know about your organization. And so instrumentation of your organization, knowing what's going on, is absolutely critical. Okay? You guys still use antivirus? Great. All right. So you get to learn, adapt, and figure out what's going on in your world. By the way, so the, the, the nice thing about this is then you can say to your, you don't have to worry about your CEO who wanders off to Starbucks. Because then this notion of perimeter security is, is not a biggie. Right, devices get to wander around. My, my test for this, by the way, was wandering around DEF CON doing my email, right? which you know is a scary thing to do uh, because people at DEF CON try and take you out. And so using public hotel Wi-Fi at DEF CON, yeah, whatever, no big deal. Okay. Then comes the next really cool thing you can do with these little virtual machines, which is throw them away. Okay, so on every single task, if you're creating one of these things, you just throw it away, okay? And you don't, 
you don't have to throw it away on the when you know that it's bad. You just throw it away every single time you do something different. You throw it away. By the way, that's a very good model for security, and you will see it come up again and again as I go through this. Throw stuff away all the time. The more often, the better. And the less that they are wound up with all sorts of other context from other organizational interests, the better. So granular separation by duty and then throw stuff away. Throw away the execution context. Because then the next time you launch a thing, it's new. And you will see this come up again and again and again in the infrastructure that you manage today, virtual machines. What's awesome, the best thing about virtual machines? Yeah, no physical machines. The next best thing is, every time you start them, it's like new. And why is that good? Because humans are terrible programmers. <laughs> There's all sorts of crap out there. Just throw them away. Get rid of them. So virtualization is becoming a lightweight concept. Okay? I want you to, to the extent that you still manage lots of virtual machines, good for you. But get ready for the next wave. And the next wave is, gosh, it's coming to you already. And that is, well, you see it in a minute, but, but, but it's a fundamental concept here is that you instrument everything, you know where it is, you know what it does, and then you throw it away. And then learning about that is key. All right. And so the cool thing about this is that we can change instant response timelines, which are typically, typically based on dwell times and everything else. If you're throwing things away, yeah, who cares? You could break into my browser. I don't care. There's nothing for you to steal. I'm going to throw you away in 10 seconds' time. And then I've got to go to the same site, get the same malware, and then you've got to try again. Good luck with that. It's harder. That's the key point. Just make it harder. Okay? Continually changing what you do in the face of malware. Okay? And really being, being able to protect is all about the rate at which you can change. The rate at which you can continually recognize that the the enemy is going to modify your infrastructure, you need to reset it every single minute of every day. Okay? Because you can't, you don't know whether something's good or bad, just, so just reset it. And virtualization gives you the opportunity of resetting things. Just start again. And it's light. Micro-virtualization is this cool concept. It's now becoming prevalent in every major cloud. And it's coming in every desktop near you. Um, I've tried hard with Apple. We'll see whether we make much progress. <clears throat> so it gives you this opportunity to defeat any attack from the outside. I'm going to give you another benefit of it uh, in a few minutes. You get this ability to detect on a per-task basis. It's so much easier to look for bad when you know what a task should do, and then something is just off. Rather than saying, ha, I have this whole operating system with all of its tasks, and the user was going to Facebook, and they were trying to do something to do with SAP, and just, you know, so you lose a lot of information in, because there's so much more noise. You get this opportunity for very detailed forensics, and you get this ability to remediate because you just don't care. As soon as you move on from the task, you throw it away. So every endpoint, everything just remediates itself continually. No more rebuilding desktops. Okay. And then you can learn, right? And one of the interesting areas, and I think an area where AI and machine learning has enormous potential, is to reduce the workload on humans who currently sit and try and find stuff. Because that's a really, really tricky thing. You get much greater precision because you have a lens, essentially. Um, and you get to do this notion of distributed learning and, and adaptation. And a bunch of vendors are going, in fact, every security vendor now is going down the path of, of greater learning and, and using those tools. That was my journey at Bromium, which was fun, hard tech, really, really hard. And we did this, and my company, Bromium, ended up going and doing this, these crazy things. I told you I've had meetings in funny places. You wouldn't believe what happens at the United Nations, by the way. That's the nuttiest place on the planet. But anyway, so we ended up doing this really high-end security stuff for a bunch of high-end places, which was a really fantastic journey for me. A lot of fun. What could we do for everybody? So we ended up working with Microsoft, 
who I give enormous credit for moving the world forward on security. Okay, so Microsoft is now dead serious about security and doing a fabulous job in my view. Okay, they're also trying to sell security for the first time associated with their cloud services, and that gives them probably more budgetary clout internally to do a better job, whatever else, but they're doing a great job. Okay, so I've told you the story about Bromium, Bromium being a pun on, I guess, Bromine the element. Microsoft went off with our help and did something else, so uh, we worked with them to modify Hyper-V. There are four legs of the Microsoft story, Helium, Allround, Krypton, and Xenon. So the key things I want you to get is that this stuff is coming to you big time now, okay? It's coming to you big time on the client and it's gonna to come to you big time on the server. There is only one Windows operating system, okay? You need to get that. So even in the cloud, it's the same Windows code base. And so the first one is this lightweight notion of containerization, which is similar to Linux containers and C groups and so on, if you know that world, but a Microsoft version of it, okay? And then, and then it gets worse, or at least more severe, okay? There are containers which provide you know, isolated um, user sessions, then there's micro-virtualizations, related stuff. So the, the two that are relevant to what I've told you are these Krypton and Xenon notions. So one of them they call Hyper-V containers, the other one, so one of them is in the operating system, same kernel, I saying tasks, the other one is actually multiple notions of the operating system. And so I'm gonna dig into those uh, briefly. But this notion of separation of duty, containerization, and continued remediation is now fundamental in the Microsoft world, and that's fabulous. Um, I'm really excited about the roadmap. Microsoft has taken device guard, it's now part of Windows 10. By the way, who, who isn't on Windows 10? <laughs> All right, you're on Windows XP. Uh, <laughs> that's right. So credential guard is now, you know, credential guard and and um, and device guard and so on are, are now part of the operating system. They have this notion of hypervisor enforced code integrity, which uh, I'll explain with an architectural diagram shortly. In the currently shipping version of Windows 10 there is a mode whereby individual tabs within the Edge browser can be hardware isolated in micro-VMs. Now, the problem with them doing that for Edge is like, does anybody use Edge? <laughs> <laughs> right, got that. Okay, nonetheless, you know, we've done all, done all the work for, um, for Chrome and for, um, and for Mozilla. Okay, cool, so uh, I'm gonna get on some architectural approaches, let me just get there, okay, cool. So what does it look like as the system comes up? So in Windows 10, what happens now is when the system is brought up, it's brought up by the hypervisor, and then immediately a couple of really important operating system services are hardware isolated from the rest of the operating system, okay? And those relate to code integrity and hypervisor enforced integrity. These services are never available within the operating system. So things like LSAS, which you may be familiar with if you're a practitioner, actually isn't part of Windows anymore. It's a separate service, it runs in a separate micro-VM, and if you invoke it, well, even an application invokes it, actually you bounce down through the kernel, and then you bounce out of the kernel again into this micro-VM. Okay, so it gives this additional degree of separation. It's really hard. The other thing they do is ensure that if you bounce into the kernel, all code pages of the kernel are write on, are read only, okay? And they do that by, so you have your standard Windows application base, okay? Which is, well, the things you expect, your legacy stuff and so on. Then Edge, Edge creates VMs on the fly, a new VM for anything untrusted. And then the work that I've done previously with regard to micro-virtualizing, other things, other applications, the office suite and so on, lives aside. Okay, so the key point here is that when bad stuff happens, it is isolated, that you can then throw away whatever you want, okay? So you get a complete record of execution for anything that runs, 
you get to keep those artifacts for later detection. And then this notion of self-remediation. There's one more mode which is important, and that is this one, which is an even more rare element, and that I think is potentially important. And that is this idea that there are certain critical applications where you don't expect the bad guy to show up, but you assume that the operating system itself is already owned. The government use case for this is that an agent on the ground in Pakistan walks into an internet cafe and needs to get back home and get hold of some application. Can you make that work? And, the op and the op it sounds really fiercely difficult because you know the operating system is owned. What you really want is to be able to use this runtime, but you don't want it to know anything about you. And the, uh, the answer is yes, it's possible. It's possible using virtualization. And uh, it's hard to do, by the way. It's very hard to ensure that the that if the bad guy was there, they wouldn't be able to see that you were there, that something was going on, even though they might not know what, what was going on. However, this concept is now uh, widely understood and appreciated, and going to go, it's going to volume in certain sectors. It's important in the military. It's important for any multi-domain efforts that the military has. So for example, people who are flying drones might need to have the web open, and they might need to be flying a drone, and they might need to be watching a video, and those are all multi-different, multi-domain things, all of which require separation. Okay, so this high, highest order of protection here, this notion which I think of as radon, is this ability to ensure that protected applications, critical applications, your CEO is in Starbucks and has to get a hold of SAP. And you think the CEO is an idiot because they definitely went to some random website and downloaded some malware. Okay, and you have no control over that. That is the use case for this, and hardwareization can really help. Okay, so that's the desktop journey. What about the rest of the world? Well, it turns out that if you take this notion of isolation and separation by duty, Seriously, you get to the next concept, which is, if it hasn't already hit your organization, it's coming. We will move on from virtual machines to containers. Okay? Do people here know what containers are? Or? Great. Okay, cool. Nobody raised their hand, so I'm assuming that means you're all experts. So the idea here, and by the way, there are Windows containers, there are Linux containers, and so on. The idea here is you have a lightweight notion of virtualization, which is based on a lighter notion of separation, not enforced by CPU necessarily. It's a, an additional degree of separation enforced by the operating system, perhaps file system and other, other mechanisms. Uh, Docker is a, big, is a big play here in the context of Linux. They're doing some things with Microsoft. The idea is that we can have a lighter weight notion of virtualization. So Microsoft is all over this. You can get containers spun up in Azure. You can do it um, in, um, in, in Google or in, or in Amazon too. But the key thing, as far as I'm concerned, is that you get to arbitrarily scale your application and you get to throw away bits of it. You get to build systems which are resilient to failure of arbitrarily fine-grained chunks of your app. And you get to instrument arbitrarily fine-grained chunks of your app. So as security practitioners, you really, really, really ought to care about instrumenting absolutely everything. Okay, you want a view of everything. So you want to have measurement and monitoring of every container as it is launched and thrown away. By the way, Google launches billions of these things every day, okay, billions of containers. All right, and so here's the distilled learning. It's all about decoupling this notion development and deployment and use Okay, so we used to have this very vertically integrated stack, I guess, but we end up with, you know, virtual machines. So virtual machines are old. Okay, virtual machines are old. They're still, hey, virtual machines are all just like, hey, I don't have to own the server anymore. That's all. I get to run stuff that I used to run, but I don't have to own the server. But it's still a shitty Windows XP or Windows Server 2003. <laughs> By the way, I should tell you a funny story at this point. I was in Japan with the maker of Kirin Beer, which is a big organization, 
And um, this is in Kyoto. So the relevance to global warming should be obvious. I sat down with the guy who ran the Citrix infrastructure. I was CTO at Citrix at the time. And he had he showed me around his data center. He had 1,000 servers running Citrix. Okay, but these were shiny new servers he just bought, right? They had 16 cores. They had at least 32 gigs of memory, tons of stuff, right? Brilliant things. They were all running Windows Server 2003, which of course is 32 operating system. And so he used most of the memory was just sitting generating heat. So I said to this guy, and it was a sweltering hot day, by the way, in, in Tokyo. <laughs> Wasn't it was in Kyoto? I mean, it was where it was. and um, and so I said to this guy, "Have you ever thought about virtualization?" And I said, oh, "No, it's new technology. This is maybe I don't know eight years ago. New technology. But then by then VMware was already public, and and so I explained to him that you know if he just put virtualization." mine, which was then, or VMware, he could probably throw away 800 servers and turn on the air conditioning and still meet his com country's commitments to Kyoto agreements. And then it occurred to me that he would never do it because his cultural clout was based on the fact that he ran 1,000 servers. And it was just very, very difficult to change. Okay, so virtual machines are old. What we need to do is build next generation enterprise apps in, in containers, in much more ephemeral notions of stuff. Next generation desktops will be built this way. Thankfully, the operating system vendors and security vendors will do the right thing for you there. And cloud native apps will be built using containers and or serverless or some other mumbo jumbo, okay? Key point I want to bring across is if you think virtual machines are sexy, uh uh, the world's moved on. Virtualization is a lightweight construct, and its prime utility, as far as I'm concerned, is throwing stuff away. Throwing stuff away because programmers are terrible. Okay? Finally, you, as, as IT people, or as security people, you get to have something to say back to them. It's like, why do I care about this stuff? Because you people write terrible apps, and I get to turn them off when they get owned, okay? That's your, that's your key play. And by the way, I would say that what you should reserve the right to do is turn one of these damn things off at any moment, right? That's your ultimate power. It's what we like as security people. That looks dodgy to me. I'm turning it off. Okay. So this world of lightweight virtualization is being pushed by lots of vendors. It's becoming part of Core operating systems become part of Linux. There's an Intel. Intel has a version of this called Clear Containers, and micro virtualization as a wrapper for containers in the cloud is happening big time. Uh, I know it's happening big time in Azure, and I believe that lightweight virtualization is making its way into Amazon. Okay, so this is the Microsoft stack evolving quite rapidly, but the, but the key goal is to get lightweight virtualization into Azure. Uh, VMware has similar structures, vSphere integrated containers and other lightweight notions of virtualization. And surprisingly enough, you know, they've not, I don't mean this so, um, sarcastically, they've done a fabulous job innovating there. The guy who uh, innovated the lightweight virtualization is Kit Colbert, he came out of the end user compute world, and he's CTO of that group. Um, so they've done a fabulous job. So recommendation, Isolate everything, throw it away often. This notion of isolation extends to the network. At the end of the day, I gave you an example of how me using Facebook deep inside your data center is of no concern whatsoever, because that task could only talk to Facebook. If you aren't already using something like vSAN or some virtualizing, some network virtualization technology, you absolutely ought to, okay? In the VMware world, that's called NSX, but the basic idea is that you get to hardware isolate individual components of individual applications on different servers or different VMs and so on. Again, isolation is your friend. Isolation, separation of duty, and preventing people from moving laterally inside your organization. It's really fundamental. Okay? 
uh, this virtualization of the network is really important. And if I were you as a security practitioner, I would demand control of that. That is an ability to ensure that the ability to move from one, one network to another is clearly uh, in your domain and policed. Okay, so we can make things that are pretty secure. And so one part of me is a cyber optimist. Okay, because I know that we are making things much, much, much better than they were. Okay, the major vendors are heavily focused on whether it be Apple or Microsoft or anybody else. Google, yeah, whatever, as long as they can sell ads, they'll be happy. And around we go again to lessons from Troy. So I'm gonna give you, I'll finish up with just a quick account of something really interesting, which is this. Who was right? Apple or the FBI? Now I'm going to demand an answer. You know Apple? Apple or the FBI? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay. So some people said Apple's right. You know, kind of tough if somebody blows you up. Okay. So the history is that Apple was kept guessing for a long time. Apple kept the FBI guessing uh, after the San Bernardino attack. And eventually, the FBI purchased a thing from Celebrite, which allowed them to break the current, the then current um, notions of, um, of access control for an iPhone. But it's happened again in Texas, and there will be more. And so I want to finish this up by posing a future for you guys, which is away from the current, world of what we do every day, and to think about notions of trust and distrust and separation in the future. So again, come back to who's right. Well, it's kind of tough. If you're the FBI, you don't have any choice, right? You just have to do what you have to do. They're obliged to protect the public. By the way, if it was your wife, you wouldn't say up. Okay? Its position is non-negotiable. Okay. It doesn't want to appear to invade privacy, but it kind of would love to. And Apple's brand promise is to protect you, which is a worthy goal because, my God, previous generations of software and technology did a really bad job of that. Okay, so they're both right. So here is an inherent contradiction in our online society. They're both right. Okay, and we have to accept that. And we have to build structures which will allow us to deal with that and still exist as a society. Because if we all say it's only Apple, yeah, piece of, you know, the bad guys will win. We know that. If I'm a bad guy and I have great security, I win. But if we open the door to the feds, yeah, nobody wants to do that. So back doors are really bad. We know that. Every, everything in us says to us that backdoors are the worst thing we could ever do. We don't want to backdoor our users. So what we want is a secure digital mechanism which is going to guarantee lawful access. We live in a place which has laws. We just got to deal with it while respecting user privacy and operating in near real time. Okay, so how can we do that? Is that possible to do given that there shall be no backdoor? Okay. And the question is, is this possible? And the answer is yes. Again, mathematics, security people to the rescue. The key point I'm trying to make here is that there will be mechanisms coming down the path which are fundamental to ensuring that this duality, this conflict, the, the need to separate this inherent duality of our, of our existence in the digital domain is possible online. So math to rescue, I'm not going to go through the math, it's called multi-party communication. Uh, MPC allows you to simultaneously protect the user and, in, and compute on encrypted data. I'm not going to go to, into the detail of it too much, but let me, let me give an idea of how it would work. Essentially, in the cloud, say, multiple parties can, which are mutually distrustful, can compute on 
encrypted data, for which none of them has the, the full key, in, in a way that none of them will ever gain more information than they started out with. Okay, it's called MPC, and it's, an, it's a branch of, crypt, of crypto, and the overhead is actually doable in the cloud now, particularly with GPUs around and so on. I'm going to give you an outline of a practical use for this. We can split cryptographic keys into shards, and so here's how you can solve the Apple versus FBI problem. This is something I've been working on with friends at the Singularity University. Take the user's key, shard it up, place each shard in the custody of different untrustworthy entities, and then using MPC protocols, allow legitimate access when it's needed. Let me give you a picture of how it would look. When the user goes to the, say, the AT&T store, they get a key provisioned into the secure enclave. It's in hardware. The user doesn't know about it. And that's used to encrypt all data on the device. So devices become more securable. They are reasonably secure already. And the key pair gets sharded. The server Friday side gets sharded up, say, between a bunch of mutually distrustful pairs, uh, organizations. Could even be countries of the UN, who cares, and, you know, and some federal agency, say the, the FCC in this case. In the event, uh, oh, oh yes, the next big thing is that continually the user's data is backed up and encrypted into the cloud. Okay? And the cool thing about this is that as a user you get a secure encrypted backup. It's a free feature. Can the government decrypt your data? No, they only have part of the key. If the FCC loses their shard, can a bad guy you know, go off and encrypt your key, decrypt your data. No, they only have part of the key. Is the user vulnerable to attack by any one of the parties? No, they would all have to collude to get hold of you. Well, the key thing is to choose this this chap. He said, I can tell you the security pro. He's very sardonic. He said um, <laughs> that never happened, which is quite right. So the key thing is to pick the distrustful parties. Okay, you have to pe pick people who are really will never collude, right? You have no interest in colluding. Okay, so how would this work? Basically, you know, the, here, here's the future scenario. Somebody manages to stop the bad guy. The bad guy's iPhone got a bullet through it, but there's a bomb ticking, and we want to know who the bad guy, who the other bad guys are. And, uh, it's hard, right? Nobody's going to give us the key, and oh gosh, the iPhone isn't even working anymore. So we have a digital warrant gets issued, which is signed by the relevant authority. Everybody recognizes that it is the relevant authority, that is, it's unforgeable. And MPC then allows us to compute on its encrypted data without ever knowing more than we start out with. So none of the parties will ever learn more than their shard of the key, okay? But the decrypted data could be delivered to the law enforcement authorities on that basis, okay? Once off, done. Doesn't work for everybody else, doesn't work for, for anybody else. It works once off and then we're done. Okay, and so this is a potential way of securely sharing, or at least managing this duality, the, the dual needs of privacy and law enforcement in uh, in a future world. Okay, so I'm going to stop here. I'd be very happy to take questions. I think the key points the key points I'm trying to make to you about this are, are this: there is only one domain. You are the fighters. Maximum distrust, as in maximum separation by duty of your components, is critical. Enforce least privilege. Rapidly recycle things, okay? And there are various technologies out there to do it, but don't rely on a single perimeter. And then move towards a future in which this notion of identity and trust and distrust is enforced by digital, digital means, okay? Embrace the digital future because it's the only one we have. And the world is not going to go down some major kinetic route. I think it's going to go down a cyber route and um, you're going to defend us, right? I'm happy to take questions. Thank you very much for your attention. We hope you enjoyed today's presentation by Simon, recorded live at the event on October 25th, 2018.
Thanks for joining us on the Information Security Podcast. You can find our other podcasts featuring keynotes and behind-the-scenes interviews with some of the Summit speakers by subscribing to the Information Security Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Learn more about the Summit at informationsecuritysummit.org. Before you'd go, we'd like to give a special thanks to our ISS partners, ASMGI, Better With Mustard, and Hurricane Labs. We'd also like to thank Front Porch Media for producing this podcast. Thanks for listening. Until next time, stay secure.